Glad to be here? Okay, so you can move around at any time if you have too much shade or not enough shade. This is a free and flowing congregation this morning, and you will offend no one. Ephesians chapter 4 is our text, and really this is part 2 of a sermon I preached last time. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not going to take every bit apart. We're not going to study every verse. I'm really only going to focus on two verses, which is going to be verses 11 and 12. But uh, in case you were not here last time, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of an update of what we talked about. But let me give you the idea just to start with. Here's the big idea of the sermon. This is what I want you to walk away with. If you are here today and you are a Christian, you are in full-time ministry. Okay? So every believer who has been joined to Jesus Christ from the time of their conversion to the time where Jesus calls him or her home, that person is a minister of Christ. So you are all in full-time ministry. That's the big idea of the sermon And then I'm going to spend the rest of our time uh, describing that for you uh, from our text. But let me just refresh you on what we talked about last time, or if you were not here, you will hear a summary of the last sermon. And that is that God has redeemed us out of the world to be joined to a people, a community, to where we are to experience and grow in Christ. So I made the point last time that one thing that COVID-19 did, as a lot of churches did church at home, was that they decided, hey, this feels pretty good. I can have my coffee and my jammies, and I can watch the sermon on TV, and I can get fed, and I don't have to go anywhere. And, And what I stressed last time was that is a That is a bad way of thinking when it comes to the church because the New Testament knows of no such isolation of believers. We are saved by Jesus Christ and then we are called into a redeemed community where we serve others and where we use the gifts that God has given us. And I gave two main reasons why people who withdraw and live in isolation from the church are outside of the will of God. And the two reasons are, first of all, you do not benefit from the spiritual gifts of other people in the body. So the way God has designed it is everyone is given a spiritual gift, and by withdrawing from the body, you are not benefiting from the spiritual gifts of others in the community that God has called you to be a part of. And the second reason this is a bad idea is because God has given each one of you a spiritual gift. And if you withdraw from the church, your participation in the body is now absent and the others in that congregation are not benefiting from the gift that you have to bring. So not only is your growth stunted, your maturity, because you don't benefit from others, 
that congregation is somehow not benefiting because you are not there with your gift. So part of the maturity that God has ordained for us is that we live together in community. That's the New Testament picture. We, we live together and we die in community. Our lives are spent in participation with the body of Christ. So that's what we talked about last time. I want to expand on that idea. And the name of this message is Every Member a Minister. That is what I want you to go home thinking about. That is what I want you to think about throughout the week. That you are a minister in the church of Jesus Christ. Now the church becomes the training ground for you to do ministry. The church is not the place where you come and you hear teaching from someone who has been called to ministry. But you also are called to full-time ministry just as I am. Although yours might look different than mine. Now, if you have Ephesians 4 open, I'm going to show you the main text where I get this from, and then we're going to talk about the context as a whole. So look at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Speaking about Christ, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So, ministry from a New Testament perspective is not something that very few are called to who get a seminary education and who end up leading a church. But ministry is something that every believer is called to and every believer must participate in. Now, I don't like to jump into a passage without talking about context. So let me give you the context of Ephesians so far. If you've been there on Wednesday night, we're going through the book of Ephesians. This will be review for you. But if you're not, let me get you up to speed. Chapter 1, Paul talks about how when you were joined to Christ by faith, it was something that God had planned in eternity past. In other words, you have a conversion story, you remember the day you put your faith in Christ, but what Paul does is show us what's going on behind the scenes, and that is that you were chosen by God to be joined to Jesus Christ. So this was the plan of God from eternity past, that he would set his love upon you, and that you would be part of his... um, you would experience the benefits of His grace. Chapter 2, Paul goes on to describe our condition prior to conversion. We were not good people who just needed a helping hand. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we were spiritually dead. We did not desire the things of God by nature. And not only that, but we were following the spirit of this age the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, the scripture says, and we were following a course away from God, and we were doing it willfully. 
So we were dead in sins and we were deceived by the, this deceiving spirit who is leading people away from God thinking that they're doing just fine. He goes on to describe what conversion is, where God comes and makes us alive and he joins us to Christ even when we were dead. And so Paul goes on to describe this thing called grace. It's something that we cannot earn. It is something we do not deserve. And it is a gift of God that God gives to us and we experience the new birth. He also goes on to describe in that chapter that all the people that are joined to to Christ no longer have any division between them. And he uses Jew and Gentile as an example. So the Jew and the Gentile become one new man in Christ to where there's no more hostility between them. And that means there's no hostility between you and any believer anywhere because those uh, walls of division have been torn down and we become part of God's family. Chapter 3, Paul explains that this was the plan of God from the beginning. That God would not only reconcile man to God, but he would reconcile man to man. So this is not plan B. It's not like God started with Israel and then that didn't work, so he decided he's going to do this new thing called the church. This was always God's plan to reconcile the world and the nations to his son. So that Jesus will have reconciled all things to himself. And he ends that chapter by saying, this is so God could put his wisdom on display for all of the spiritual beings in heavenly places. Okay, so that's chapters 1 through 3. And what chapters 1 through 3 really are is a summary of what God has done for you. But then when you get to chapter 4, the emphasis now shifts to what you are to do in light of that. So in other words, he shifts from the theological to the practical. Chapters 1 through 3 explain what is true. Chapters 4 through 6 explain what you do. So we do not receive this gift of grace from God and then just go on our own course living however we want. But rather, we receive this salvation from God and we are then joined to a community of other believers who have also received that gift of salvation. And now, as a community, we serve together the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives. So let's back up, beginning of chapter 4. Paul says, this is verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. So, now that we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, how now are we to live? And he tells us, we are to live in a manner that is consistent with your calling. 
So you have been called out of the world by God. He has demonstrated his love for you by giving you a perfect substitute. Your sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to your account. And now it is your duty as a disciple to live in a worthy manner of that calling. Now, what does that look like? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, how are you to live? Well, you are to be humble, gentle, patient. You are to endure with others in the church. And basically, it's what Jesus does. We are to reflect the God who has saved us, and we are to live in accord with how Jesus lived. We are not to be proud or harsh or impatient or short-tempered. We are not to be in uh, strife with one another, but we are to endure with one another in love. Paul goes on to describe our unity. He says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here is this picture of unity that we have as being part of the body of Christ. We all have the same Father. We are all born of the same Spirit. We have all participated in the same baptism. So there's this unity that transcends any differences that we have. And we do have differences, right? If you look around, there are different ages. We have different abilities, different strengths and weaknesses, different backgrounds. We have different personalities. We have different interests. But in the midst of this great diversity, there is a great unity that brings us all together as one. So, in one sense, we are all called to the same calling. We are all serving Christ. But in another sense, we have a different calling because our service to Christ might look different. And rather than focusing on all the particulars, I'd love to just get into this passage and take it apart bit by bit, but I just want to drive home this main point that we're working towards, and that is... You and I have the same calling in that we are called to full-time ministry. I'm going to repeat myself in this because it's the one main idea I want you to get, and that is that Christians are all called to full-time ministry. Now notice how Paul describes this. He takes us back to the ascension when Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven and he leaves gifts to his church for all believers. Look at this, verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us 
according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So this means that Jesus did not leave us on earth to figure it out for ourselves. He didn't leave us without any kind of structure. He didn't leave us without any kind of guidance. But rather, he gave us the church, and the church becomes the context where we mature in our faith in Christ, and the church becomes the primary context for your ministry. The church becomes the primary context for your ministry. So Christ ascended to heaven. We are left to do the work of the kingdom. And he gives gifts to the church so that we can carry out that work. Skip down to verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now you can stop there. The reason that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers is explained in verse 12. And I want you to underline this in your Bible and highlight it, even if you are not that kind of person who writes in your Bible. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You see that in your Bible? You see that on your phone? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, who are the saints? Well, that's you. The saints are those who, if you've been reading the book thus far, you would find out in chapter 1, the saints are the elect of God. Chapter 2, the saints are those who were dead in their sins, but have been made alive by God. Chapter 3, the saints are those who have been brought into the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile, to serve the risen Christ. And the saints are those who are to be equipped by these offices in the church, apostle, prophet, etc., etc., pastor, so that you can carry out the work of your ministry. Now, for a thousand years or more, The Roman Catholic Church brought confusion to this subject by creating an unbiblical distinction between clergy and laity. In other words, they created two classes of Christians. There are those who do the work of ministry, which are called the clergy. So those are the priests and the bishops and the cardinals and so forth. And then there's this other class of Christians, which is all the rest of the people who are called the laity, who are not qualified to minister. So they would have this view that there is a particular calling for those in ministry, and they are separate in this category called clergy, 
and they do ministry, and all of the rest of the people do not. Or all of the rest of the people somehow benefit from the ministry that these men are doing in this one category. Now, this is a false and unbiblical distortion of what the Bible teaches about being a minister. Verse 11 shows us that there are those in the church whose primary focus is leading and teaching, right? So apostles, prophets, etc. But the whole point of that passage is not to create some kind of distinction in between two classes, but the structure is there so that you can become equipped to fulfill your ministry, So that the people who come every week and are in the pews and not necessarily having a teaching gift are being instructed and equipped so that they can then go out and do ministry. I used to think of the illustration that church is like a huddle in a football game. You watch a football game, right? And they all come together and they huddle and they say, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, we're going to... We're going to run the play this way and then break and they all split up, right, to do the play. In the same way, we come together as the church and we are instructed and we are equipped and we are maturing in our faith so that we can be useful to Christ who is going to come back someday and we will give an account of how we served him. So rather than the Catholic Church and their idea of a priesthood, which is only a very select few, the New Testament picture is a priesthood of all believers. So everyone who is born of the Spirit of God and who is joined to Christ's church is a priest because they can now mediate between God and man. They are now representatives of this Christ who is risen and ascended. In fact, if you have a church where only a handful of people are engaged in ministry, you have people who come into great danger, as James warns in his letter, that they become hearers of the word only and not doers. So if your idea of the church is that there's only a handful of people in the church who do ministry, and the rest do not do ministry, then you have a false picture of the church, and the danger is that you will just become a spectator and not a participant, which is kind of what we talked about last time. So the church is the place where we come and we grow together and we mature together, and it is also the place where we become trained. This is our training ground. This is where we discover our spiritual gifts in this community. This is where we are taught and instructed to discern what is good and what is evil so that we are more effective in our service to Christ. Now, what kind of ministry are we talking about here, you might ask? And I can't tell you specifically for you, 
But I can tell you, generally speaking, your primary ministry is to other members of the church. And I get this from Romans 15. In fact, why don't you turn there? If you're in Ephesians, I don't know how many books to the left it is, but it's to your left. Romans chapter 15. In verse 14, Paul says to the Roman church, Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Do you see that? Able to instruct one another. Now, this word instruct can also mean admonish, or it can mean warn, or it can even mean counsel. In fact, Jay Adams wrote a book called uh, Competent to Counsel, and his main text was Romans 15, 14, and the book is all about how the Christian church are competent to counsel one another... And we don't always need to run and get the pastor to do that. Now, I understand there are times within the church where you might need a little extra help, and you might call upon the pastor or an elder in the church who's got maybe a little more insight into the Scripture, a little more wisdom, perhaps. But first and foremost, if you are in a situation where you have a brother or sister before you, who needs help in some way, the person that God has appointed to help that person is you. Paul believed that that the, the Christians in Rome were able to do this with one another. He's confident that they have the ability. They can instruct one another. They can encourage one another. They can minister to one another. And they don't need a separate class of Christians who are formally trained to do that. Now you might think, oh, pastor, I don't think I could do this. I mean, I'm just not that good at speaking with other people. I don't know the scriptures as well. And I don't, listen, I am confident that you can do this. Do you know why I'm so confident? Because you have at least two things. You have God and you have the scriptures. I mean, imagine feeling helpless and you have God and his word. (laughs) And I'll throw in a third thing. God has given you a spiritual gift. And that gift he has given to you for the sake of others in the church. Now, your spiritual gift might not be teaching. This does not mean that every person in the church can come up and teach a sermon. But I believe what God tells us in the scripture is that we do have enough and that we are competent enough to encourage or instruct or counsel another believer. Now, if you're still in Romans, turn back a couple pages to chapter 12, and I want to show you another area 
where Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 12, and I'll start in verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now listen to this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you get his point? So here is this diverse group, and they don't all have the same function, but when they are together, they are one in Christ, and their gifts come together, and it operates this machinery called the body of Christ. Now, in, in all of this, these are ordinary people. This is not Paul saying, now let me speak to the clergy for a minute and tell you about how you're going to lead the church. No, this is Paul talking to ordinary people like you and me about how we are to function together in community in all of our ordinariness. We minister to one another. We minister to one another as we share in our relationship with Christ and as we love each other, we grow alongside each other into greater and greater Christ-likeness. This is how God has ordained that you mature in Christ. You do not do it by being separate from the body. You do it as part of the body, participating in the body, and discovering your spiritual gifts within the body. Now I want to conclude back in chapter 4, so turn back there. Because what we saw earlier about equipping you for the work of ministry has a conclusion to that, and that is your maturity in Christ. So if you're back at chapter 4, let's go back to verse 11 one more time. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, here's the part you underlined, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So why has God given 
gifts to the body. It's for the equipping of the saints. It's for our maturity in Christ. It's so we stop being little kids spiritually and we become mature and we can discern between good and evil. So that you hear someone on TV or someone asks if this is a good Christian book or not, you can read through it and within a few minutes you can discover if this is solid or not. Yes, you can call me and I can try to give some insight, but you can also do that as you mature. You can discern between good and evil. You do not need to remain as a child spiritually being tossed about by this idea and that idea and this new fad in the church and this new thing. But you yourselves will have the ability to discern these things. So I just want to encourage you this morning, as I did last time, that your participation in the body of Christ is an indispensable part of your growth as a Christian. God has redeemed you out of the world. He has redeemed you to part of a community. And your relationship to Him is indispensable to your relationship with the local Christian church. So let us grow together. Let us love together. Let us mature together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us so many gifts. You've given us the gift of salvation. You've given us the gift of faith. You have given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have given us the gift of the Christian church. You have given us the gift of a spiritual gift. And Lord, may we glorify you in community. May we glorify you today as we celebrate together this salvation, this common salvation that we share. And may you bless the remainder of our day and our fellowship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.